you've been looking for a podcast to help you transform your physical and mental one that'll shoot you straight between the eyes with truth and no bs helping you have the right mindset to accomplish things the iron will and fortitude to follow through with what you say you're going to do no excuses Mark owns martial arts schools, and after 30 years, he has some real insight for real talk, real life, real conversations, motivational, fitness, self-defense, weight loss, live from the Great 1-8. This is Real Talk with Mark Cox. All right, here we are. Now we're live. Good morning, Matt. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Mark? I'm very, very good. It's good. It's it's good to uh, be able to talk to you a little bit. Uh, before I'll introduce you briefly. I mean, we've been friends since uh, I, I can't. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was you. I started teaching martial arts, or we learned. We we met each other at Rocky Peak in the late '80s, or what what that was. But uh, we've been in each other's lives for a long, long time, and uh, through the martial arts and through church, and so I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit, what you do, your your family, and uh, with no further ado, Matt Moran. Hey, so, yeah, we go back to, it's probably 1990-ish or something, and I've mentioned this story uh, walking into Faith Evangelical and seeing, uh, was it Kevin? Uh, I don't know. He he sang a, a Rich Mullen song. I didn't realize he was in your family for ten years. You know, I don't know why I didn't make that connection. So we started spending a lot more time together, um, probably mid '90s to the two starting two thousands, and trained at your studio. Matt trained at your studio, and uh, yeah. So I've got um, four kids. Uh, Matt, Jess, Christopher, and Sarah. Um, you know all of them, probably Sarah the least. I think we moved when she was pretty young. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I work in technology, do data analytics, I write music, and have a couple books that I've written on career development for IT professionals. Yeah, so that's where <clears throat> I remember that's where. Um we yeah we got together quite a bit because i think uh, i'm almost positive back in the in the early times you helped me with a website for the studio you know what i mean yeah i i kind of remember that i remember you working at rick's place and uh and having having your own business off off to the side there where where you worked which is a unique story in itself because i think that um i mean it is probably where you've been the most and um, I'm not sure if you were self-taught, if that's how you did it. You made a business out of being self-taught, kind of an entrepreneur always. Uh, is that where that is that where you started as far as uh, IT goes? Yeah, so in high school, my friend Mike Quinn, um, he, uh, he was my best friend in high school. He was taking one of the first computer programming classes they offered in any high school. And he came in and showed me this program he had written on an Apple IIe computer and just basically said, enter your name, you'd enter it, and it'd blink on the screen. And I thought, well, that's cool. How'd you do that? And he showed me the code. He walked away from it and, uh, you know, 
just kind of left and I opened up the book and I started geeking out and just writing code. And the first thing I wrote was a program to keep track of all my books because I'm a book geek. I've got books everywhere and uh, my dad was always buying used books. So we had boxes of them and I'd number the books and put books in there and I wanted to know where they were. And so I wrote this library database and that's really how I started. So yeah, I've never taken a computer class. I've taught a few of them, but uh, uh, ultimately got hired by Blue Cross of California. I was doing sales calls. I was selling copiers hated it hated it every day and uh so it was about 112 degrees in woodland hills and i walked into the blue cross headquarters to make a sales call and i said oh the air conditioning's nice and uh they had a job for somebody who did data entry and because i could type you know 80 words a minute or whatever it was i got hired and pretty soon i just started automating things and about nine ten months later i was programming for blue cross so yeah, that's it's always been something you always had kind of like this entrepreneur spirit about you and your your family. You'd mentioned all your kids. I think that uh, um, I think if you if you look back, well, pretty you're pretty athletic yourself. And I and I believe all your children <clears throat> have been super athletic. I mean, uh, let, let's dive into that. Your your athleticism family, because they're all pretty unique uh in themselves all right you know with yeah that, the daughter that climbs let, let's 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 uh let's talk about each about your the physicality of your family sure well you know i i always tell people uh you know I, I was not a great team athlete growing up i have a brother who was an amazing soccer soccer player you know played for csun it's like on the u.s national team or something he's just an amazing pl player and he was probably the best athlete I would consider the best natural athlete in our family. He was just really good at a lot of sports. But I was always really good at these individual sports, skateboarding, jumping off things, you know, whatever it was, climbing. And so from the time my kids were very young, I had them out running around the hills, catching snakes. You know, you've seen the videos, right? We're always doing something <laughs> stupid. Yeah. And uh, so um, then I started coaching. Uh, soccer and my oldest son matt he he kept getting he was a good defensive player he wasn't a super high talent player not a dribbler not he didn't try and score but he was an amazing defensive player and in part of it it was because he was just physical to the point where he'd get penalties a lot but they weren't it wasn't him being cheap it was just him being aggressive and what that migrated to because i'd started playing a little bit of hockey um is you know he he was actually on a movie set for the or a film set whatever for the x-files he was doing extra work and they were he was with some kids playing street hockey he didn't play but they all played but he liked it and he said oh, i'm gonna play i want to play hockey so we got him into hockey which turned out to be a great fit for him compared to because all the crap he was getting penalties for in soccer he could do in hockey and it was perfectly okay <laughs> right so anyway, so he's he's always been athletic, and then you know just all the kids hiked around. So Jesse, um, people always ask me because you've seen her. She's a professional climber. She guides and um, lives up in Oregon. Right now she's in Washington, but she lives in Oregon. But travels around like uh, all these climbers are like the surfers of the '60s and '70s and the summer where they just go around to you know surf. Basically, climbers. They work hard enough to make enough money so they can go to the next climbing spot, live in their cars, and climb, like every that's, day, right? 
right? So you've seen the pictures. I've She's... seen the pictures of her hanging off <clears throat> the side of cliffs. I'm just like, man, yeah, it's uh, yeah, all, all of them. I, you know, Chris too. I think Chris was wrestling and uh, and stuff like that. And you're right. I I didn't know much about Sarah. What? How? How was she on the athletic? So she's she played she played roller hockey when she was younger. She was not big on team sports. She was always very athletic, wet, ready to go. And it was, you know, in part, I attribute it to just a lifetime of being out and about. You know, we we've I've lived in Chatsworth since I was five, or you know, when I lived there. I'm not there now, but um, and I love Chatsworth. I mean, you you've been there a long time. We lived in a house that was you know kitty corner from the studio when it used to be hughes market there were no right. condos there that's correct there was a big empty field there was the apartments and then the neighborhood and everything north was all farms and citrus groves right and so we grew up going to stony point every day right just always climbing around so my kids um i think i had sarah in a front pack carrier when she was four years old and we were climbing up Point Doom at Zuma and, you know, it's just what I've always done. So I think they just got used to, you know, being running around and climbing, you know, it's kind of a natural athleticism just because what was there, you know? Right. I think, well, and you still do it today, you know, so those that know, you know, that you're always out with the dogs or you're still climbing, you'll go meet your daughter. And, uh, I, I think that, uh, that, you know, that just shows, um, uh, you know, just what it is when you're outdoors and you're at, doing athletic things instead of being cooped up in the house like most kids are today. So that's that's always been something I've watched from afar uh, on how you deal with your 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 children that way and your and the athletes that they all, all became, you know, so it's been that's been fun to watch. So let's uh, uh, let's talk about. Um, well, the question keeps getting brought up because you put it in the. So I, got, <laughs> I, got, I got like three D. I know where this is going. That's. <laughs> I'm like, oh man. I said uh, I'll let him tell the story. I got like three DMs after you after you shared it on Facebook. Like, what is he talking about? The black eyes. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll let him tell the story uh, about his black eyes and the pictures in there. But so, let's go ahead and answer that question that's been asked uh, three or four times of me now. Well, it's always a funny story to me because all the first pictures of Sarah have me in the picture with two black eyes, right? And they're like, what? What happened to you? And I was like, oh, that was just me, some love taps from Mark Cox. So um, we were training at the studio, and I've always loved being in the ring or being on the mat, never had a problem tangling. And uh, so I remember this day we were all sparring, and uh, I had actually started, I was sparring with Bo. Uh, right before you. And um, it was funny because, you know, I think he wanted to be a little bit fancy. He tried a flying, like, scissor kick, right? Wanted to take me down that way. But I I kind of thought he's going to pull this on me. So when he did, I was able to kind of jump forward, defend it, and, you know, got on top of him, you know, gave gave a couple hits there. And whatever, and you go, all right, let's, you know, that, that ended. And then you go, all right, let's you and I go. And look, I... I felt pretty good standing up. I mean, you know, like I, I don't have the hands I should. I, I always say that I've relied on my legs way too much my entire martial arts career, right? Got a good sidekick, good back kick, and I can keep people away from me. It's a, you know, it's a great tool. 
And uh, so we were kind of going back and forth with that. And, but as it happens, and it always happens, it's it, <laughs> the weakness in my game is my ground game. And that's definitely not your weakness. Um, so we got tangled up and I knew I'm like just going, I got to get out of this some way and I'm trying to get away. And we ended up going to the ground and uh, you were able to, I just had to cover up it. So, you know, I trying to get away was the worst thing because that just opened me up. I'm like, try, bam, okay, okay. We're just going to, you know, pull one of these. Yeah, so. I, I remember that. I, I, and people, you know, they, that was a long, long time ago too. I mean, I mean, how, how old is Sarah now? She is 22. So yeah, yeah. Uh, this is 20, years 22 years ago, 22 years <laughs> yeah. ago. Yeah, that's, I remember too, man. I was, uh, well, yeah, yeah, that was me more in my prime back in the day. You know what I mean? I was in, I'm 60 now. So I've, I'd have been in late thirties and the early forties. And when yeah, I was it, really, when I was really banging, doing it sucked. Thing. It sucked. <laughs> I remember you, you, you know, that it's funny that when people ask about it and I said, you know, he didn't start with me. And so a lot of times, you know, you have a different respect for your instructor that you start with. And you, when you come from a different place, it's not, you don't have a respect. It's just that you just don't know, you know, you don't know mm -hmm. the instructor. Well, you don't know, you know, and then, and then you're then then it escalates to whatever whatever it is because I think you started um, you started your martial arts elsewhere. What what? Who, I, I was at the Vito Falco Taekwondo right, Vito, Academy. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's why you and we talked about that quite even because he's a, he was a great guy. Yeah. Vito is a is a really good dude. Yeah. And uh, but we we spoke a lot about you do a lot of kicking and you always keep your hands down. That's why you get you know punched in the face and you have black eyes. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so we, you know, that was, yeah, that was a long time ago. Those are, those are fun memories. And then of course, yeah, all your pictures have black eyes in them. And, I, and so when you put it out there, everybody's like, what is he talking about? And I said, I'll let him tell the story. And, uh, yeah, I, I said, just back in the day, I mean, people that I tell people, I mean, there's a blood and guts era of martial arts and it was like that little knuckle punches on and rock and rolling. And it just was just what we did. You know? I, look, I enjoyed it. I, I mean, I, I will tell you, the guy that got me into martial arts, he's on, I don't know if you've met him personally, uh, uh, Mike Martinez. Um, he was a brutal fighter, brutal fighter. And he got me into martial arts like 15, 16 years old. He kept seeing me getting beat up. I won't go into any detail on that. But he's like, look, why don't you come here to the studio? And be, it, it was kind of martial arts was well suited for me because once again it was one of those individual things I was really I, you know I could walk on my hands I could do a zillion push-ups pull-ups I was really good at all that just individual physicality kind of stuff and martial arts gave me a place where I could just sit there and kind of channel that and then in in our studio we we sparred you know our biggest challenge in going to tournaments was getting deemed for excessive contact and it's not that we were trying to fight dirty it's we trained like you were in the rink you we trained like you were striking people you know uh-huh right and yep. you, you know you get those people that you know they they kind of do this retreating back fist they hit you in the stomach and they get a point you're going <laughs> uh, come on now so the next time that happens you just come down clock you know and then it's <laughs> <laughs> then excessive contact and you know it's the name of the game i get it but um uh yeah so i i really appreciate that but mike was the one that 
you know, he'd point the same thing out where I'd be like this. And he's like, you know, every time you're throwing that kick, you're dropping this hand. I'm going to, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And, you know, he tagged me a few times, one time with the spinning heel kick and just kind of, I just done, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Judy said you can also ride a unicycle. That's what she just. <laughs> hey, I, I can actually, uh, yeah, ride a unicycle, juggle. Look, I, it, all, once again, all the individual things, rather than get good grades, I made the determination in middle school. I said, well, I could get good grades or I could learn all these tricks and maybe girls will like that. And as it turned out, I didn't get the attention of girls either way. So, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I didn't know because I was too terrified of them, but. Yeah, well, that's probably more like it back in those days. Let's talk about your music real quick because I, I think that you – I, I want to talk about what you do on, on the songwriting side. And you took something I think that was uh, – you just took it to the next level and why you decided to go out for songwriters because it's a natural thing, by the way. I think that, you know, martial arts and music, it's it's funny that, you know, a lot of martial artists are, are musicians. I don't know if you know that or not. I, I, sure. I don't know if it's uh, – just one of those things that they all do you know i've played guitar for a while i picked up the saxophone and and all my kids are musically inclined also and then you took this hobby and i think you took it to another level i mean you've been playing guitar and then songwriting let's talk about how that all happens and what you've done now with the songwriting and and how you have uh what you've done with that sure um well i started playing music my dad was a banjo player and um you know, we were in the house in Chatsworth, right there on Hiawatha off San Jose, right there by the studio, that house where my brother used to live. And um, I was sitting up, I just remember being, I don't know, maybe I was seven, eight years old and my dad was recording Blowing in the Wind on his banjo, just on a cassette recorder, not, not even four track, just simple cassette. And my dad had this big, low, booming voice and, you know, um, basic banjo player not not an amazing technical banjo player but he good rhythm and i just love that recording so i took it and uh i i'd wear that i wish i could find these tapes right these cassettes right. you know yeah. and um so i knew i wanted to do that and i just one day i said i played a little piano i knew to read music and my dad said i said i want to play guitar and he pointed out a guitar and said well pick that up there's a book so understand and we've talked about this my parents were not like the big kind of like, you can do it. They were more like, well, if you want to do it, go do it. We won't stop you, you know, just, you know. And then if you prove that you wanted to do it, they would come alongside and um, more directly support you. But they weren't going to just throw resources at you if you decided you wanted to do something. You had to prove something, which I appreciate. Um, and so anyway, so I started writing songs right away, but... You know, it was intermittent here and there. I wrote a few good things over the years that people would say, man, this song should be on the radio. This is a great tune. And then in 2006, um, you know, I about that time frame, I wrote a song that really got some notice in Arizona. We lived in Arizona at the time. And uh, I went out to play at this open mic at this place called Cave Creek Coffee Company that was one of the best places for original music in Arizona. And right away, like the guy that owned the place said, hey, I want to hire you to play the wine bar. And it was a paid gig. And I was like, how'd that happen? So um, it was really cool. And so since then, you know, I, I've 
really spent the last year working on my recording and production because it's COVID, nobody's playing out. So I said, all right, I'm going to, um, I'm going to take that time and really jump into something that I've always kind of pushed back on was the mechanical element of recording. I didn't really like recording myself. Now I've come to really enjoy it. So that's, that's, that's kind of where it's going. We we're we're starting to play back out again. I've got, um, just picked up a bass player, uh, got a good guitar player for my band, and we're hoping to do some stuff over this next year. So what's the now? I remember, I remember early on. I remember doing. I think I did a T-shirt for you at one point, way back in the time, right when you were first starting things. And yeah. So, so, what is the songwriter? Do you not have uh, uh, a website or something that where where other songwriters get together what is what is that that you've put together for that well what i had for a while it's not really active right now although i have a list of i used to have something called the songwriter online where i just taught technology and kind of strategy for songwriters and really it wasn't because i had attained some monstrous level of success what it was is that i've done you know a fair amount with both writing my books, with the technology, with creating kind of a following there. Um, and in 2009, I was playing this music. I'd been hired to play at the wine bar. I had opened for a couple national acts and I'd gotten people to give me their mailing address, wanted to know when I was playing. And I sat down, it really was at the start of the year, and I said, you know, if I was consulting myself, because I do consulting, I tell people, here's what you might want to do. Here's content. We've talked about it. You know, content you could do to encourage people to come to the studio, whatever. And I realized I wasn't doing any of those things. So the, the phrase I would say all the time is, take my advice, I'm not using it, right? <laughs> you know, which is really stupid. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's you know, it, yeah, you know, it, I, it's become a phrase, but actually somebody called me on it and said, you know, it's kind of stupid. Why don't you use your advice? You know, which I still have to kind of jump into from time to time and str struggle with. Um, so what I did is I immediately sat down and I wrote a little, I call it a business plan, but it was four pages, just a simple list of things I should be doing if I want to do something more with my music. And, you know, then I took that list and I pared it down to three things. And that was merchandise, the shirts you made, um uh let's see i wanted merchandise something i could leave them musically like a cd or something and creating a list of venues and so that's what i started with and, and oh, i'm sorry a mailing list so i guess it was four items whatever what happened was I, I show up at this open mic and a bunch of people showed up to watch me play and these guys who are you know, one guy, Jim Pipkin, he's an amazing songwriter and he's one like Folk Alley Artist of the Year, great storyteller. And he's like, how are you doing all this stuff? And I said, well, here, let me show you. And I helped him get his mailing list together and his website and some other technology. And then another person said, hey, can you teach me this? And then the Arizona Songwriters Association contacted me and said, can you do this workshop for us? And so I did a workshop. And suddenly I kind of became the social media technology guy for all these artists. And that's really how I started the songwriter online. There's no money in it. Artists have no money, you, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, right. And that's true. They're the worst clients in the world. I don't want them as clients. I always say I don't want them as clients. I can't afford me. God knows you can't. So <laughs> isn't it something that uh, that sometimes, our, you know, our passion will lead to uh, 
to to uh, money at some point or sometimes our passion just leads to the passion of what it is and you know and i know that music is a hard gig i've watched my own children do this you know my, uh you know my gabriel had a band and you know he was even at the whiskey one time and watching what these kids go through and how they take advantage of of young oh uh, uh, you know making them go go sell tickets for their venue only so they have the opportunity to play and i told you know they're so young i said do you have any idea how reamed you guys are getting yeah right. well you know what's funny is my band won't do pay to play we never did right away i saw that gig and it's funny that you mentioned that because i've done some videos on it there's a guy they probably talked to him um, i don't know if he's still out there around la his name was t-roy that was the name he went by and he worked for like um the dakota lounge and the mint i tell people don't play any of those venues if you don't have a following what ends up happening and this is the cycle and i'm sure that gabriel saw this you go out and they go, okay, yeah, you, we can get you a slot on a Wednesday night at 945 in Hollywood. There's no parking, right? I won't even go to Hollywood on a Wednesday night, right? Even if I'm playing, I don't want to show up, right? <laughs> and, so what you do, you don't have a following, but you want so badly to play these places because they're the places you read about in the past, you know, the whiskey and, you know, whatever it was, right? So you think that's what you need to do. And so this guy says, you know, T-Roy or whoever the, he calls himself a promoter, but he's not a promoter. He's not promoting your show. He's a scheduler. He's a secretary. That's all he is, right? And he says, play this gig and, you, you know, you got to guarantee 20 tickets sold. We take those first 20, but you get everyone after that. So basically $200. Um, and what happens is they sell them or they give away these tickets to family and friends because they don't have a following. And I tell people all the time, Family and friends are not fans. I'm sorry. They watched you growing up. They've heard all your songs. They've they, like, <laughs> right. you know, whatever. And that's cool. Like, I, I get it. But so what they do is they go, um, they invite them. And maybe the first time everybody comes out because they want to support them. You want to support people in the arts, right? And uh, uh, I'm really going to have to work on my lighting situation. I look so green or something. But anyways. <laughs> So, so you, you invite them all out, they all show up, and you're like, okay, it's kind of a successful gig. It feels good. You had people there, you played, they clapped. It felt great. But then you book another gig two months later, and now maybe your mom shows up, and maybe one of your friends, and now you're on the hook for $180, and nobody's really there. And you're like, this, it's so defeating. Right. Correct. And yep. so what I tell bands to do, and this is kind of one of the things I started doing is, first of all, when you're playing original music, don't play long sets. People are being introduced to brand new music. Don't expect them to sit there for an hour and love every song. Even if your songs are great, there's a limit to new music acceptance. And that's totally cool as well. So you have to understand that. And so what I tell people is you'd be better off finding two other acts, one or two other acts and go, hey, let's go play for an hour and a half at this venue together, and we'll go to the venue. Not, it doesn't have to be, an, it could be any restaurant. It could be a karate studio. It doesn't have to be what you think is traditionally a venue. It doesn't have to be those places. And you go out and you say, okay, rather than us playing $200 tickets, because you might have to pay something for promotion, maybe the two acts or the three acts say, hey, let's set a budget, let's create some flyers, let's run some ads on Facebook, 
And the most important thing, and I tell the access all the time, is promote the other guys. Don't promote you. So come out there and say, um, oh my God, we're so excited. We're playing this show. And you know, we've played with a band called The Fallen Stars and another band called Jed's Dead. They're really good bands. And I always want really good acts. Like if they're better than us, even better. I'm not threatened by it. That just pushes us to be better. And so I'll just say, oh my God, you got to come see these guys. They're amazing. You know, And then on their side, The Fallen Stars are going, oh man, we get a chance to play with Matt Rand. You got to check out this guy's songwriting. And what that does is it gets their listeners and their list excited about some new music in a way that isn't just me going, come see me, I'm awesome. Hey, I know I'm awesome, but come see, you know, I, I, <laughs> yeah, right. people are going to get sick of hearing it, right? So that's, and that's what I tell bands to do is find your own venue, do it at a rec center, do it at a, like find a place where you don't have to pay anything and don't make it 9.45 on a Wednesday night in Hollywood with no parking. Make it at eight o'clock on a Tuesday or on a Friday at this restaurant. Hey, we're just playing for 30, 40 minutes. Would love to have you come out. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the studio. That's what I did for my son. So I'd let him play here and he'd have his different bands. And, you know, there. and then I'd be able to, uh, you know, kind of be the bouncer up front, you know, and, uh, and you know it was a it was a place for these young guys to and these young bands to come and play their music and not have to come up with a bunch of money and and stuff. So that that's that I, I did that for my own son too. So I, I remember doing all that stuff for him. So well, let's get into uh, <clears throat> we're already twenty thirty minutes in. So I want to talk a little bit more about. Um, I think that you have a, a real compelling story on addiction with your with uh our your son who with chris who is with me uh also you know we we have chewed the same dirt with your boy and um i want to talk a little bit about you know as a father or and what you seen also i, I want i really want to get into the the real talk of what that looks like when you went to the streets and found him because i you know i did that too you know i went to where chris was living on the streets and i mean it was a uh, a shithole to say that to, i was i was beyond shocked as far as that goes but um how long have you guys been dealing with the addiction part of it well so and, and now i've written about this quite a bit and i'm gonna i'm gonna work on not getting emotional because we're in the middle of that right now but um you know and i mentioned before we got on i'm, I'm feeling pretty good about things but feeling good good pretty good about things is a day-to-day -day kind of thing right so um the first thing is christopher has struggled with some sort of drug related abuse since he was probably 13 or 14 years old and wasn't that it was hard drugs or anything it was that regardless of what it was things fell apart for him he just wasn't able to kind of keep things together regardless but it really ramped up and you know and i i think you're aware of this i mean he was kicked out of three different high schools and and the thing is and i think you could you know testify to this is he's a nice kid like when he's a nice kid right like he's not the angry youth sullen against the corner you know just like doesn't like adults he's always been very personable everybody likes him right 
But, you know, he has this this demon, this challenge that he can't get past. And so um, about 2018, well, you and I, you and I worked like crazy. We got him into the military, and right. yeah, um, did. that was that took us doing a little bit of work. You know, we had to go to the courthouse, and there's a whole bunch of things. And he had, you know, a good year and a half in there, and then he started to have some challenges there. He was out in Korea, and he had a certain friend, um, who, by the way, this guy's doing really good now, and is trying to press Chris to get things together, but they. They had some challenges and he came back to Fort Hood, then he got in trouble there and then ultimately was thankfully let go with a general discharge under honorable conditions. Um, Yes, he wasn't dishonorably discharged. He wasn't dishonorably discharged. And that has been, you know, he has his resources through the VA, which I don't know what we would have done without that. It's been remarkable. They're an amazing medical team and just their social worker, everything. You know, I, I can't say enough about the VA in L.A. And um, but so he came back from the military. Um, you took him in. I think it was the second time you had taken him in um, and then had the incident where he uh, stole from you. And that challenge kicked off a few other things that, you know, for a while it seemed like he was going to get it back together. And then suddenly he tried, and he's told me about the first time he tried it, he tried fentanyl. And fentanyl is, you know, it's something else. Um, because when it seems to get a hold of people, it doesn't seem like it lets go. So Christopher di- disappeared from my life 2000 end of 2018 and I couldn't find, didn't know where he was. And, you know, when you're dealing with an addict, you go back and forth between this, I got to live my life and do things. And, oh my God, where is my kid? And it's kind of this back and forth because I have other kids too. And you're trying to, you know, I'm, I'm parenting Sarah. She's living with me. We're in LA. And so there's limited resources and time for me to go find him. But eventually I started making a concerted effort to go find him and just started visiting homeless communities around the city, which, you know, it's very strange to walk up to somebody with your phone. And I remember the first time it happened, it was in Koreatown. I walk up to this guy, he's living in a tent in a, um, like a Staples parking lot in the corner with his girlfriend or something, middle-aged African-American man. And uh, I walk up and I say, hey, have you seen him? Have you said, this is my son. I'm looking for my son. I just have my phone. I'm literally walking around with a picture, you know. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know him. And him saying that, my heart dropped. Although I was excited, like, oh, he's seen him. But I'm going, wow, you walk up to some, this guy was using drugs while I walked up to him. Um, And you're going, I just walked up to a homeless drug addict, and he knows my son. Like, that's that's weird and so he said you know go by macarthur park the yoshinoya he's he's using fentanyl right and i go i don't really know and he goes yeah that's where the fentanyl users go so it's a weird community you know and it is a community as weird as it sounds but these people know kind of some of their movements you know of people that are around there so he had seen him and he said to me and you know you'll get a kick out of this as as grim as the story is he said, oh, yeah, yeah, he, 
he talks a lot. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I understand the source of that. You know, I can't you know deny that that has been the knock on me for a long time. So, um, and I'll always remember we went, so I'm out looking for him and I'm talking to all these addicts and, you know, I just got very comfortable with sticking my head into a tent and going, anybody seen this guy? Anybody seen this guy? I didn't yeah. care, you know? So I've talked to drug dealers and gang members and the police out there and the help worker, the aid workers. And eventually, um, uh, can't, I ran into a guy at... A guy said, look for him up at Vermont and Beverly. And the really funny story is, not funny, but I, I'm outside of a, I, I, it was a Jack in the Box, right by MacArthur Park. And this two guys are coming out, and one guy looks like he's new on the streets. But there's a look. I could tell these guys are both from the street. The second guy, he's got tattoos all over him and piercings and just kind of, you know, wild looking. And the first, but they're walking together. The first guy's a little bit in front of him. I go, hey, have you seen this guy? It's my son. And the first guy's kind of looking. He's kind of shaking his head no. And the guy behind him, the guy with all the tattoos, I see him going, yeah. And he, I go, I'm just his dad. I'm not, he's not in trouble. I just want to know where he is. And the guy goes, go to Vermont and Beverly. He's somewhere around there. That's where he is. And I go, okay. And then the first guy goes, man, that's really cool that you're looking for him. Nobody ever comes out, you know, to look for us out here. They don't care or whatever. And the second guy, the guy that's all tatted up goes, and this was just a remarkable kind of like, I, I almost had respect for him in the sense that he just kind of owned it. He said, that's bullshit. We're here because we choose to be. And he goes, you know, your son's a nice kid and I hope you find him. And I was like, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I appreciate the candor. And so we did find Chris and, um, and you know, True to form on the street, these these girls that we walked up, they go, oh, I know him, I'll go get him. And she runs off. And the other girl's talking to me going, girl, young lady, is going, oh, my gosh, you know, he talks about you guys all the time. He's such, you really did a good job raising him. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm on the streets in this homeless community going, it seems like I, if that was true, we wouldn't be here, you know, because no matter, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I told you the story. One of them said, the same girl, actually, she goes, you guys are like the Leave it to Beaver family. And I was like, like <laughs> what episode was Beave behind the McDonald's shooting up heroin? I didn't see that episode. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's I guess when you look at it from their from their perspective is is there's no denying that Chris is one of these respectful um kids you know what i mean that you can't it's hard to not like the kid when you're around him for a while and when he does things wrong he's super apologetic and he just can't seem to get past his own his own demons you know what i mean and then so yeah i mean that was yeah that was a little bit rough when 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 he was here you know i you know i've always liked him i always i've done this not just for Chris. I've done this a couple times, and you know, I got to be honest, Matt. There's not one time that it's gone good. So I, I don't know what that was. That is kind of a breath of fresh air when you say that one guy goes, you know, that's bullshit. You know, why, Matt? We are out here on our own accord, and I, I think that you bring a perspective because it's your son. Number one, I mean, you and I have had some uh, 
uh, tear-dripping phone calls on what's up. And I've always been in the background wondering, you know, how is this kid doing? You know what I mean? Because I know what he thinks about me is a, you know, he, he looks for that, you know, that acceptance from me and stuff like that. So it's really hard from my, my perspective on, on that. I can't imagine what it is from a father's perspective and how you have to, how you have to go to sleep. I've never gone to sleep and wondered what my kid is doing on the street. You know what I yeah. mean? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how sometimes you do sleep unless you have to just uh, put it, put it to the side to try and get some, some sleep. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I really would probably be just like what you're doing out on the street. Isn't it funny? We have no fear when we're going after the ones we love. You know what I mean? I mean, I would have zero fear just like you did. When I went to the street to see Chris, how they live, I, I you know, when I saw them and how they live and, and, uh, the weird thing is, it's kind of, I don't know. It's like a, for lack of a better term, it's like a family out there with them, you know? Now, of course their family, they rip off each other. You know, they'll, they'll rat each other out. They'll steal things from each other. It's, uh, the most dysfunctional thing I've ever seen ever. You know what I mean? And I don't know you being out there, you know, you're a little more advocate out there for the, for the homeless do you feel that they're well? Obviously, LA isn't doing isn't doing anything right, right? What do you feel is is something that would make a change out there? Well, you know, I kind of have, I guess, maybe they're radical ideas. I don't think they are, but my my oldest son, so Matt, he worked with a homeless group up in out in Chicago, um, and he and his his older sister have several different times gotten Chris into rehab. They they moved. They took him out to Arizona. So they've been in the fight, too. And, I mean, Matt and Chris got into a physical altercation. And Matt found out that, oh, wrestling really helps Chris, right? Like, <laughs> damn it, you know. Chris was a big, strong kid. So um, there's a few things. He turned me on to a, a book called Chasing the Screen by a guy named Johan Hari. And if anybody wants to look, look up Johan Hari. Hari is... Uh, H-A-R-I, but either way, his book called Chasing the Scream, he has a great TED Talk called Everything We Know About Addiction is Wrong, and I think it's worth looking at, and it really got me thinking, because he said, Dad, you know, you've tried the yelling, you've tried the shame, you've tried, you know, forcing him, you know, and none of those things matter, because he's going to make his own decision, but what you have to understand is, there's a community out there on the street. And he's part of this community. He has a family. And you're right, it's a dysfunctional family. But by the same token, they do look out for each other. The number of times, you know, I, it's gotten to where they know me out there. But they would, I could tell they were lying to me. Oh, we haven't seen him. We have, you know, and, um, and they carry Narcan around. So if somebody overdoses, they literally bring these people back to life on the street. These addicts are all carrying Narcan so they could bring their friend back to life if he overdoses right and so that's very dysfunctional and yet somehow there's a community there they get food they you know it's 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 a whole thing and what matt said is dad why don't you go out there and just find out what he's up to just talk to him like he's a person and you know rather than try and fix him and that's hard that's a really hard shift to make as a dad right mm -hmm. um you know you want to Beg him, grab him, 
kidnap him. I told you once years ago, I go, man, if I could kidnap him and I had the resources, I'd just put him in a room for the next five years and get his head straight, you know? Um, just not an option. So I went out there and I just said, that was the first thing is, is and, and then this is the other thing I saw that was out there, is there are some good resource organizations, but they're operating almost in silos. So they, they don't know what the other is doing. And a lot of people view this as a law enforcement thing. Oh, there's a bunch of homeless here with tents. We hate that, and I get it. It frustrates me. So let's get the police involved. But then the police, they don't have the resources to deal with that. Like, they're they're both not equipped from a training standpoint. They're meant to go out there and, you know, protect and serve from from a, a criminal activity standpoint. And while, yeah, doing drugs is a criminal activity, they're over in some tent, and it's like, is that where... What are we going to do? Like, we're just shifting their location to a new place. That's not really solving it. And so there are places that have done better jobs. And, you know, um, I, I believe we have a failed war on drugs, and it's caused all kinds of problems. And we had the same problem with alcohol. Prohibition didn't work. It created crime. And so my radical idea is, well, look, fentanyl's cheap. Drugs are actually cheap. They, they cost almost nothing. If you want to get rid of gang activity, give the drugs away for free, but do this. It's at this location where it's clean, where they have to, right? And then sit there and go, you know, look, if you want to make 20 bucks today, all you have to do is spend an hour and a half cleaning this one little strip of street. Now, you're not going to get, maybe you get 50% of the people that are willing to do that. Just go out there and fill up a trash bag and the city can pick up those trash bags, right? Because there's all this trash. But you might get somebody who wants to earn 20 bucks every few days and what that does long term is maybe it gives them some sense that they can take care of their environment and it's not going to be a perfect solution but right now there's a whole underground economy if you've been to MacArthur Park um, there's all these street vendors all those street vendors get their product from drug addicts who are stealing them from CVS from you know Target from that's what these addicts do. They go out and they steal these items. That's what Chris was doing. Um, I'd go, and he was very open. I'd go out there and I'd go, hey, have you seen Chris? They go, oh, I think he's out boosting. Boosting is going out and stealing from CVS. He'd, play a, he'd pay a security guard 20 bucks. I'm going to go get some female products because they, they uh, get more money. They're worth more. He'd steal those items. He'd sell them to a vendor on the street. He gets money to go get drugs, right? Mm. We can do away with that economy. It, it, and, and so right now, the problem is, uh, you know, it requires hiring a security guard at CVS, at Target, at this place. You know, we're hiring all these extra people. It requires extra resources from a police standpoint. And so, yeah, it sounds crazy to go, well, maybe if we just provided a place where they could do drugs without having to pay for them and do them cleanly, and also offer a way that they could make a little extra money, maybe a little bit of respect and kind of ownership gets built into that. You're not going to solve every problem, but it seems like we could do away with that underground economy and take kind of the gangs out of it. Yeah, that's inter that's interesting. You get a lot of pushback on that. Oh, you know, we have a very we have a and I get it. I grew up in the same era. We have a very kind of moralistic view of dealing with drugs, right? But places like Vancouver and Portugal, and once again, it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve any everything. But these other places have done better jobs on dealing with addicts and homelessness. They just have. And people, they want to push it to, 
you know, nobody wants to make that move because no politician, the guy who did it in Vancouver, he lost his, um, he was the mayor and he was actually much more on the, the side on the war on drugs, but he kept having these people showed up. Uh, you can read about it in Hari's book, but people kept showing up to his events and saying, look, another person died on the street. We could solve this. And it was all the homeless who were doing it. There was this advocate out there. And then this young girl, uh, young woman who had been at those meetings wasn't there one day and the mayor knew her. She had talked to him several times and said, where is she? And the guy said, she overdosed last week. And the mayor goes, I'm, I gotta change what I'm doing. Now he ultimately lost um, the next election because, oh, he's easy on drugs. That's kind of the knock. And that's the price that gets paid. But he'll, to this day, he goes, look, I believe what we did was right. It's working. And so if I had to lose my political career to make that one right move, then I think it was the right thing. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, that's that's whatever idea we have right now is right. I think you are, are spot on as far as law enforcement is not, um, you know, we enforce laws. We, we're not supposed to be... Um, psychiatrist on the street and dealing with it we're supposed to be putting you in handcuffs if you're dealing if you're dealing drugs that's what we're supposed to be doing so but if we don't do that uh you know then you get it to where the police just i I mean now you got you know you got the other side of it where you can steal stuff and there's no really repercussions of it anymore so it just opens and then listen to you say that they'll pay a security guard off just so they can do it i mean think it's it's Right. Oh, you know, and it's funny. I and I, I told you the story, and you know, I, I'm happy to share this because I've been very open about it with law enforcement too. The the first time we got so what happened with Chris? Just the short summary, and this is very common on the streets. You know, he's doing IV drug use on the streets, and Chris has no sense of self care. Usually, women do better; they just take care of themselves a little bit better. Um, <clears throat> but. So Chris developed uh, a skin infection, cellulitis, and that skin infection, ultimately, he'd go, he got an abscess, he went to the hospital, he starts getting antibiotics, they say you gotta stay here for another day, but he's dope sick, he wants drugs, so he leaves against medical advice, right? The number of times they said, oh, he left AMA, because he'd call me, oh, I'm at Hollywood Presbyterian, okay, okay, let me know what happens. Then I'd call back and they'd be like, he left last night, AMA. I mean, he's literally walked out of hospitals with just pulling IVs out of his arms and just walking out, right? Gonna go get drugs. So the infection ultimately got into his blood, became septicemia, which is basically a step away from sepsis. It lodged in his back and destroyed a couple vertebrae and a disc. They had to have a radical back surgery. He was clean for six months after that and doing pretty well. You visited him during that time. Mm-hmm. Then he relapsed and went back on the streets, even though they told him the infection is going to come back and it will attack that prior surgery. Um, That repeated. He ended up calling me one day and he's on the streets um, paralyzed from the waist down. And so I drive out and I get him to the VA hospital and uh, they have to do another back surgery. And now, you know, and, and so this is. This is the story I was going to tell, though. So understand where he's at now is the infection came back after his last time, attacked his heart. He's going to have a valve replacement. It's pretty intense. Um, he stroked uh, on the like the 22nd. I, and I'm saying this, by the way, Chris has given me permission to talk about it. So we, we've talked about this, but he's pretty open about it, as you know. 
sometimes in a way that is not i don't want to hear these stories like right. Not, right. you know yeah but he'll tell you so um yeah so so that's kind of where things are with with him right now but I'll, but i'll tell this one story and it's just kind of my approach and it was an interesting conversation i'm not going to say where he was at the time because i think i don't want anybody to get in trouble but he was in the hospital and he was threatening to leave and they call me and they say he's threatening to leave and i had already told them if he threatens to leave have a note in there tell them to call me so i get on the phone with him i go chris don't fucking leave like i'm you know don't leave and he goes dad i i need fentanyl i go fine i'll go get you fentanyl okay so now this is the second time I've bought fentanyl on the street, which of course I picture myself getting arrested for this. Everybody thinks I'm a cop on the street. That's a big problem. So well, you you look more like from the Breaking Bad. Uh, yeah, you, you, you Mike. Look like you know, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. Uh, the number of times I've been in the hospital, and like one time I'm there, and I'm just and I'm angry because Chris is in there and he's sick, and I'm worried. And these nurses walk out and they go, she goes, oh, you're a cop. I can tell. And I go, nope, I'm not. I'm a musician. I'm just pissed. <laughs> so I go back out on the street. Well, the first time we bid it, he wouldn't go. He knew he had to be at the hospital. And his mom and I were there. He was very sick. And the paramedics had showed up and he wouldn't get in the ambulance. And then the police showed up. And Chris goes, I'll go if I can take a hit, if I can get fentanyl. I go, okay, fine. And I went around the corner. I told the cops, I go, I'll be right back. I went over, I bought fentanyl, and I told the police, I go, I'm going to dose him right now. I'm going to let him dose himself, and then we're going to get him out of here. And the police said, whatever, just do it. So the next time I go out on the street, I'm looking for East Coast. That was the drug dealer's name. And and so here I am walking down the street. I know where the guy is kind of. I go, hey, I'm looking for East Coast. And and this guy's like, I don't know who, who the fuck you're talking about. And some told me this is the guy, you know, and I'm going, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm Christopher's dad. You, you know, you called him Bigfoot or OD Chris or, and he goes, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm frustrated. And all of a sudden I hear this, honey, what are you doing out here? And there's uh, Tasha, who's a, a African-American transvestite who was friends with Chris, who I'd met, right? I'm telling you, you couldn't make a story of this, right? Like this doesn't, I'll write this in a book. If you put it in a movie, people would go, this is so unrealistic. <laughs> but I had had several conversations with, with Tasha and I like her. She's cool. So I, so she goes, what are you doing here? And I go, Chris in the hospital. I need to get him fentanyl or he's going to leave. And I, you know, East Coast, I'm looking for East Coast. And she goes, honey, you are too loud and you look like a cop. You come to me, I'll take care of you. And so she she ended up scoring my fentanyl for me, and I brought it over to. And I called the doctor. I said, "Why don't you guys just give him a low dose of fentanyl? The infection's the problem, not the addiction. You're not solving the addiction. Let's just cure the pressing medical condition. We'll deal with addiction later." And the and the the doctor said, "I agree with you, but our hands are tied. We can't do it." And I go, "Okay, I'm going to get fentanyl. I'm going to sneak it into your hospital, and I'm going to dose him." And the doctor says, I 100% agree with what you're saying. I agree with your approach, but I can't have you do that. So I'll send him downstairs on a cigarette break when you get here. Um. And that's what he did. Now, and look, I view that doctor as making a sound decision based on the pressing, you know, because what happens is if they don't get treatment, if, a, if an addict goes into the hospital and he leaves a day later, 
he now is out there with the infection, creating a antibiotic resistant strain of that infection. Like there's multiple issues there, right? It's not just this one addict made a bad choice and maybe he dies. It's other people are going to have that same infection. It's going to be rampant on the street. And that's kind of what happened. And so that's kind of informed my different approach. And that's why I went out and bought fentanyl. Not not anything I thought I'd be doing. <laughs> right. Well, and it's so listening to the story right where the police are giving you the nod, the doctors are giving you the nod. It's obvious that they've seen enough uh, that if you got it from the doctor's perspective, I can see them wanting to treat the um, the not the addiction. They want to they want to make sure that they're preserving life. You know what I mean? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I can kind of see that from uh, from that standpoint. So. I, I, well, uh, and, and, and I think from the police perspective, it's, okay, we could arrest a guy for this, but it's just, he's just going to loop through the system and be back out because there's, like, we're not putting away some hardened criminal. We're putting away a very sick person, right? You know, Christopher at that point could hardly stand. And it's like, there's no, all it is is a bunch of paperwork for them, and it's not getting bad guys, actual bad guys off the street. That's correct. Well, how, why don't you let everybody know how old Chris is, how, how old we're talking about. Christopher is 28 years old, just turned 28. 28. Right, still in his 20s. And, you know, he, he was a strapping dude, too. And This is a, a, a phenomenal kid with phenomenal genetics and strength. And um, Un Unknowingly so. You and I would talk about it. He'd oh lift weights God. for like 30, 30 seconds or 30 minutes. He'd do like five days of working out, and he'd just be like shredded. And I'm going, I can't do that no matter what I do. Right. Yes. He just had these phenomenal genetics. And then to see him um, reduced down and it's it's taxing. It's taxing on me because I'm close to that kid and uh, what it's like to be his dad and, and mom. I mean, you and I have come from a divorce situation. So but, you know, divorce or not, you're still you still have a child this child together correct and and so yeah yeah she she saved his life on two specific occasions saved his life when i had given up yeah. yes and i know that we we've had those we've had those conversations you and i on what that what that looks like and is there any resource you know matt when people are watching this and stuff like that is there any resource that you went to 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 help you deal with that or is it just reading books and talking to other people that have children that are in it or or have you not really dealt with that yourself what what's the what's the real well my I, the first thing is my older kids or what all the kids have been amazing right they really rally around me and make sure my mental health is and my sister as well um, I think you know the story I found my brother dead in March of last year March uh, last year he died of alcoholism um so you know that was tough and so i've had a lot of hits this last year you know i i'm a pretty optimistic person but i was like holy cow this year has been rough but i will say that johan hari's book from a standpoint of understanding addiction some al-anon um and then i've reached out to a few i i got therapy for a while um you know i it just kind of like you mentioned it 
I, I don't sleep a lot as it is. You know, I'm up at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning every day, 365 days a year, and I like it. I love mornings. But, you know, it was more like waking up panicked at one going, my, I, I think I talked to you once when I couldn't find Chris, and I was literally weeping going, my, my little boy is dead, my little boy is dead. You know, like wow. you're losing yep. your freaking mind. And so I've had some of those nights. Um, I What I've learned, I will tell you, is I try not to fight it anymore. Like I try not to lay in bed. I just get up and I go, okay, let's read something. Let's play some music. Let's do something to break and then try and go back to bed and do the best we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's... I think that's good. I think that we've, uh, you know, I've had a special place for him all the time. And just for those that know that are listening, you know, regardless of what anybody says, he still he still put the uniform on. You know what I mean? And he ran into problems in Korea, but he still stood, you know, he still stood with uh, arms to protect the United States. So, you know, that always goes a long way with me. Like you can talk all you can talk all the shit you want. He still stood. He still stood guard to defend. And um, you know whether he made the wrong and right decisions in there. You know that. You know I. I understand that. That's there. There's a lot of that issues in in the military. It's not. It's not exclusive to Chris. Sure. And and so, um, I thought that this the second half of this podcast would be about this because I know that there's people out there that that have run into the same the same situation that you have and i don't know maybe you can give some advice here you know there is a community across the street from my school and they i I watch them they try and hide it as much as they can you know when they're when they're dealing because i just don't i you know Mm -hmm. i can't i can't deal you know the 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 you think you look like a cop going out there. I'm like, gosh. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, I mean, I couldn't get anywhere when I went out there, right? And I'm like, man, maybe I need to change. Maybe I need to put uh, different shirts on and put a baseball hat on or whatever. But it doesn't really matter because, uh, you know, they they can smell them a mile away. But uh, I find that this these group of guys, there's a few guys over there that are, are pretty, seem to be pretty normal. Now, you start putting the females in. Those females are radical, man. They are. They they start a lot of problems. And um, one one was pregnant, and she's you know she's kind of she's kind of mentally not there, and she gets in the street and she gets hit the other uh, uh. last month, right? And let she the, the car didn't kill her, but uh, then all of a sudden, um, you have uh, um, she lost her baby. Right now, she's back on the street, and she's just as crazy as she was before she got hit. And I mean, so I'm like, this is just such a vicious circle. I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't know if feeding them is great. I don't know if, if, you know, you get you get the the city to come out and give them sandwiches, and you know, and they get to have their little badge of I feel good today because I helped somebody. I, I don't really, I I don't really know what the answer is out there. You know, it. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of letting people get get hungry. I'm not a big fan of seeing females on the street, you know. Uh you know, you know what's happening to them out there and mm-hmm. what they're doing to 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 survive and and it's just it's a vicious circle that I I don't know. I 
I don't know what what what's your feeling on that. What do you think when when you know do we just go back to humanity and we help what we help? Because I here's the thing, even the pop up pantries and all the stuff and feeding the people. I, and I, you know, and I like seeing when there's when there's older people or people with children and they're just not they're struggling. They can't eat. And I think we should feed everybody. I, I, I mean, feeding people is not should not be an issue in, in the United States of America. That is mm-hmm. for sure. And so you got like Freedom Church. It has pop up pantries. And every Wednesday you see they come in. And, but then the same you'll see the Mercedes. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the Maseratis go through line to get food. I'm, it just, you know, I can't I just can't. I can't deal with it. You know what I mean? I, so, you know, you helping those that help, but then you see the same people come and taking showers and stuff going five, six years that don't really want to change that behavior. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what is it they say out there? You know, what is the percentage that somebody can come out of this? Well, I, I hate to think of the percentages and that that could make me sick and I just just you saying that bring up the percentages literally almost brought me to tears so for fentanyl it's something like under two percent okay under two percent um, now there is another thing and Johan Hari talks about this is um, and I my son posted some links up there people should definitely check out that TED talk um, but uh it, in one way we have to disconnect from the direct uh result we get in the immediate because if you look at that you're going to be discouraged no matter what and so matt's admonishment to me my oldest son was just treat them like human beings just treat them like they're a fellow man and they've got a problem just you know we see somebody who's got let's just say and I'm not making an equivalency, but let's just say somebody has, uh, they're, they're, mi- they're missing a leg, you know, then we, we do accommodations to help that person. It's not about fairness or what, who gets equal. It's about this person needs this accommodation because of this issue. And we can try and build that up. Well, there's some other sickness with addiction. It's not what the mistake people make in the way it's portrayed is uh, they're just lazy and they're on the streets getting stuff for free. If you've been around that community enough times, it is such a stressful existence. It's not like we're kicking back partying. That's not the scene. The scene is, yeah, how can I get drugs? I've got to do this. and I've got to be fearful of my stuff. They're carrying all their stuff with them. It's high. It's so stressful. And if we saw that and understood the humanity, we might go, wait a second. I just want to treat them like a human. And food isn't the biggest issue. There's food. We have food. Um, they have access to resources for food. They can get showers. What Matt got me to understand is, and I could express my concerns, and even that when I talk to other addicts, I'm like, I don't really understand your life, but I'm not here to judge you. I'm just here to bring some socks. Socks, foot health was a big thing, right? And I read about that after my son told me about it. It's like, they don't take care of their feet. They keep the same socks on. They get wet. They get mold. They get you know infection. So I just bought socks at the dollar store I'd bring I'd buy 30 at a time and actually the dollar store gave me a discount after I told them what I was doing I was getting like 30 sock pairs of socks for 15 bucks and I just go out there with socks and just give out socks hey who needs some free socks you know um 
and just talk to him. I talked to Tasha. I said, Tasha, what's your story? Did you ever have a dream of doing anything? This is the uh, uh, transvestite who got me my fentanyl, right? And I said, how'd you end up here? And Tasha said, look, I, I, I was in foster care from the time I was like six or seven. Uh, I was raped three times before I turned 18 years old. And my last family that abused me, hit me, whatever, said I was a discipline problem. And at 17, they dropped me off in Hollywood. And I've been here ever since. And so then I said, well, do, you know, I, I'd asked, and, and Tasha goes, I, I kind of thought I'd like to design clothes. I used to think that. And I go, well, maybe you could do that. And Tasha goes, I don't even know how to get an ID. Wow. And so this, you know, it's more, there's such a systemic thing that has to occur with education and coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we do have some, we have DPS, we have resources, right? But going through that system, okay, I got an appointment. And if you think it's hard enough for us to keep our appointments, drug addicts aren't real good at keeping appointments, right? And so... And I don't really have a solution for all of that. There's so many things, but there's a whole systemic like lack of training, lack of awareness. If you don't know these things exist, you don't even look at them. And so the biggest thing I tell people is, look, I understand not wanting them under the freeway overpass and in the dirt, but also while you're trying to come up with a solution for that, look at more than just the solution of taking a bulldozer and pushing them away going, what are the bigger issues going here and and what's what does humanity compel me to do can i be can i just say hello to somebody and just have a conversation like they're a human being and not mm -hmm. a how do, oh do you want to get off the street okay we might get there but maybe i need to build trust first interesting yeah that's good your son wrote something here pretty pretty good here he says uh Johan talks about how if being an addict becomes boring, i.e. offer free drugs and tea while in a medical office with smooth jazz playing, they tend to stop using in about three years. If they remain on the streets, they usually stop around 10-year mark if they live that long. They are often addicted to subculture, among other things. The substance isn't as addictive as we think. Interesting. Yeah. Obviously, Matt has done some some research on that, and I'm, I'm sure he's he's... I know that Chris talks about his brother quite often, so. Um. Matt's been out there and, I'm sorry. Um, he's been a big piece of this and he's, Chris really looks up to his brother mm -hmm. and, and his sister. And look, Jess came out and, you know, I have a picture of Matt with Chris when he was, before his first surgery and Chris could hardly stand. It just Matt said, look, I'm just taking a picture with my brother. Not a picture with somebody I need to fix. I want him to be better, but he's my brother now that he's an addict. He's not my brother when he gets better. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good dude. He's a good man. So, yeah, I know. Th I knew this was going to be a little uh, uh, on the tough side, but, you know, <clears throat> I talk about real talk. I mean, this is some real shit. This is not – this is not – I mean, I've lived this with you, so uh, I've been right in this fight with you. Uh, with yeah, I, and I appreciate you know, that I'm more than you know, you know, and I've mentioned it several times. Um, you know, you uh, it, we know we've gotten into our little tips online, and uh, you know, it's a wrong move for anybody to come and attack you. I, it's not allowed, right? <laughs> yeah. And I don't not that you need my help, but I I've said this person has done above and beyond for my family. Um, you know, and I appreciate that more than you yeah. know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we've yeah we've had 
we had some fun with uh, I, i'm still I, i'm still a sarcastic asshole don't worry i'm like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can take it you know i got pretty thick skin i i, I you know if i'm going to say something out there i expect to get the the repercussions but um uh but yeah this stuff has been uh been important to me you know there's just something about that kid that you know i fight for him in the back you know what i mean uh background but at the same time you know i got i got got tough love for him you know when i see him i just i'd like to just wring his neck half the time you know it's like what what right this is what we want to do we're like what how how much more how how many more chances does god give you before you like you know you know you're going to go up there and see him he's going to look at you and go what what is your deal you know what i mean and uh and so you know let's see what happens on this next go around we'll um you know, I always wait for you when you when it's time for me to to make contact with him. When you think it's time, then I'll make the contact because usually that gives him a little bit more strength. If uh, if he knows Mr. Cox isn't you know uh, upset with him, mad at him, it's just so past that anymore. Being mad, it's just the you know I've told him before. I said it's the disappointment that you give your dad that drives me crazy, bro. You know what I mean? I said. It's not even this. It's like you don't see the other side of things like I do. And then, you know, you just, you know, take off. But we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see what 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 this next go around. Is. I mean, this is pretty serious. So you talked about that. He's, you know, and we, those that know Chris, you know, he such a, you know, a strength and everything else. And to see him reduced to this off drugs and 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 stuff like that and i want to make sure everybody understands this is coming from a a family that was together okay mom dad great family i used to go over to your we had life groups at your house and do all this kind of stuff so it's not just this uh you know sad story of of this this is something that that chris took and and that you have to deal with you know, as a family, you guys done great. I mean, Matt's been, Matt's been great. I think that, uh, you know, we're going to be pushing for him. We'll let, we'll let people know, uh, from here. And I, I'm going to, I'll put up in comments on, on the stuff that your son put up for us to, um, these links. I think I'm going to do that today. I think I'm going to listen to this Ted talk while I'm kind of working in the background a little bit today and, and hear what he has to say, because from my, you know, I just, I mean, if I'm going to be real, man, like when we do the stuff at church, I have a hard time going to pop-up pantries and stuff like this because I'm like, why do I keep seeing you guys here for five freaking years, man? Okay? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, I don't know if we're you, – you ask yourself, are, are, am, I, am I just letting – am I helping you at all by just giving you all the stuff that you need or not? I think one of the best things I did see one time, one thing that I did see that was very – to me they had the housing people there and they had the courts were there so you could take care of bench warrants and stuff like that right then and there at this thing i i really felt that that was the best thing that i had ever seen really go down well yeah i and i i mentioned it it's look the resources the resources are there theoretically there are resources it's how do you marshal people who've got i mean there's plenty of mental illness and we don't really have a solution for that yet. Um, and then there's plenty of, like, like Matt said, the subculture and the, the environment of, you know, there's a, I, I hate to say it, but like a 
bad guy romancing of the idea of like I'm this on the streets, I've got this gritty life. There's that subculture that Matt kind of mentioned. And yeah, his statistic on they get bored if it's not there. Once again, it, it, you know what you mentioned, what if some of those resources weren't they have to go to a building but and and, and so this is the challenge with politicians. There's a short-term cost for a longer term benefit. And that's a really hard sell when you're running on a two to four year election cycle. Because if you sit there and go, okay, we're gonna put some money here into taking care of these homeless communities, not just bulldozing them over because they're gonna appear somewhere else, but going, let's have, we're gonna hire some more people at DPSS and have them on the streets going to people. Oh, you, okay, I'll be back here with your ID. We'll do the picture out here. Like they could, these things could be done but they do cost short-term money for potentially long-term benefit. Yeah, interesting. Well, that was good, man. We've wrapped up here. We're an hour and 15 in. And so, I, you know, I think that I'm looking forward to push this out to get other people to, because this is some real stuff, right? I mean, when you got to talk about, listen, my, I did what I had to do to keep my kid in there to, to get healed from uh, a sickness, including going out to the street myself. I'm sure... I'm sure when you first did it, you're like, I can't believe what I'm doing. And uh, I just pictured getting arrested and going, I'm going to make, I'm going to be calling my girlfriend. Uh, yeah. So I'm in the pokey. <laughs> right. And that would be, that would be Murphy's law. The addicts never get arrested, but the one trying to help somebody would get, would get, get, get taken. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. But that was good. I think that, uh, I think that this will, this will help out a lot. I think, you know you got such a diverse thing i mean we could talk for for a long time i mean we could have done a whole thing just on the music part of it or your it and i think you have some other stuff so matt when i do this i'll have people where they want to reach out to you because there's a lot of stuff that you have just so you guys know it's just you know whether whether you got to listen to somebody that's actually going through addiction with his child okay and so um you know you don't get better resources than that you can't you know i hate talking to people or like when I lost weight or somebody that's never had a weight problem tell me how to lose weight. It's just like, man, can I just punch you in the face or what? Just shut up. And uh, just just don't eat and exercise, dude. It's easy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, this is right. And so I, I think that getting that resource also, you know, you have a great resource. So you've helped me tremendously. If people don't really understand even how Google stuff works and how you you put out there that you you know what's out there for free that you get to use and you don't utilize it you know you've you've helped me with that over time too you know on how to i still use some of the stuff that you've done for me on no this is how you this is all free this is how you store stuff this is how people come in and and how you've done that so you know a man of a lot of talents and uh a good friend for sure and uh we do we do have fun on facebook i have more fun getting everybody all riled up than i do arguing with you well and, and the worst the worst part about it is because deb goes you're a bully because you don't care if people call you an asshole if they if they get mad at me i just go well yeah you're right but anyways back to this point you know there's yeah i don't care and, and so you know you look i i tell i i told her the other day i said this guy's going to respond to something and i'm not posting anything on facebook right now I, i'm worried about my music and my son i've got plenty of stuff to do but i said i want to write back to this guy and say you are entering the land of giants and you are ill-equipped for this adventure. <laughs> Deb goes, you're such an arrogant asshole. <laughs> Isn't that what you call your, your, your song yeah. or something? Arrogant something? 
a- arrogant sage and, and <laughs> yeah i have a exactly if they want to and it, look i wrote i wrote a thing called addicts addict son addict family and i'm going to be doing more of that i'm going to be working with chris's mom we maybe it will become a memoir we think there's something in there um but you know maybe it's a whole family publication because my whole point is and this is for anybody who's dealing with addiction or whatever or has it in their family um if you look for addict son addict family i think it's on linkedin but i also have it on uh my Substack. anyways mark will put the link up i you know i don't need to tell you about that but um reach out to me and i'll point you at resources and um uh you know uh and and kind of share what i know i mean i, I was approached by a, an addiction organization i told them i go mostly my story is going to be i don't really know what i'm doing but i try and see the humanity and that's the best i can do yeah that's it and that's really good advice you know we we we, we forget about that quite often you know i don't know I, I me especially you know because there's just a side of me that's like man pull your head out of your ass bro you know, I, I get it no we and uh, johan hari will speak to that issue they're frustrated addicts are frustrating addiction is frustrating but okay but by the same token you know, you struggled with weight for X amount of time. And, you know, there are people that were judgmental and, oh, just fix it. Just do this. And you had to finally get, you had to get to this point where you took it on yourself. That's very much what we should be trying to help addicts do. Yeah. 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 That's David Starachi is one of uh, an old friend of mine. That's uh, he's a martial, an old martial artist from Black Belt. This is David Starachi. Yes. Matt is local, by the way. Uh, if you want to if you want to ever talk to him, Dave, I can I can hook that up for you. No problem. And uh, so that's good. I'm telling you right now, dude, we're going to end this broadcast with this. I'm telling you one day I'm going to have Chris on this freaking show and he is going to change lives based on what he did in his life. You it, I tell him this every time I see him. The story that you can tell and the amount of people that you can change one day when you get your shit together is going to be awesome. You know what I mean? And I still feel that. I still feel that he's going to do that one day. I don't know when. I would when. love that. You know, I don't know when, but I keep rooting for him. You know what I, I mean? appreciate that. All right. I appreciate right, it man. so much. It was a good time today. I'll talk Thank to you. Thank you. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Real Talk with Mark Cox. Real life, real topics, real conversation. We're passionate about motivation, fitness, self-defense, weight loss, and coming at it from a real angle. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you had fun. We know we did. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on Instagram and Facebook at MarkCox100. Make sure to subscribe and review. And tell a friend or two about the show. For more, hit up the website at MarkCox.com. Till next time, keep it real. Keep it real.